Acts chapter 4 is where we are. We're going to pick up with a uh, sort of with the story that began in Acts chapter 3, which was where Peter and John had the opportunity. To, they were going to the temple, as they always did, uh, at a particular time of day. They were going to go there to pray. And uh, they came across a man that was lame, the Bible says, uh, from his birth, uh, that they wanted to uh, just pass by, really, uh, as they probably typically did. But this day, God moved upon Peter's heart, uh, John's heart. And they stopped, and they looked at the man square to the face, and they, they said, look at us. Give us your attention. The man did. And Peter said to him, look, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have, that I do give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man did. And the scripture says that the man not only got up and walked, but that he walked with them, leaping and praising the Lord, went into the temple. And as we can imagine, there was quite a commotion. Uh, this guy, I would imagine, was quite excited, quite thrilled at this turn of events, most unexpected turn of events in this particular day, delighting in the Lord. No doubt drawing attention to himself inadvertently, without even intending to necessarily do so. And so let us pray. Why don't we pray for our time together? We'll settle our hearts, settle the room, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to go into the word of God. Lord, we thank you for this, this place. Lord, even for our friends that are at home, for the technology. And we pray that you would come and you'd minister to us. Lord, that you would use your word in our lives. You'd inspire us, you'd challenge us. Lord, convict us. Teach us, certainly, by your Holy Spirit. And bless us as a result of uh, putting, this side, putting aside this time this morning to hear from you. Bless us, we pray. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 in particular, it sort of is this uh, summary verse of where the rest of the book is going to go. I pointed it out previously, but notice, look at it, verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Well, the first example that Luke chooses to give to us, now perhaps it was the actual first example, or it was the first one that Luke chose to write about. One way or the other, the first example that we have for us in our scriptures of one of these wonders and signs that was done through the apostles was the healing of this lame man. And as the text makes pretty clear, this guy wasn't even looking for a healing. I'm sure earlier in his life he probably was. Every time that they went to the temple, his parents probably prayed, and before meals they probably lifted up a prayer, and they probably called the elders to come and pray. I'm sure there was a time in his life where he was regularly seeking the Lord for healing. But in the passage that we have before us, it doesn't even look like, seem like that has come into his thinking. He has sort of settled in to where he has settled in in life. And what he's really looking for is just some change, some money something that can sort of help him get by to the next day, to make a, a difficult situation sort of livable. That's what he wants. But yet the Lord, we see, we saw, has a different desire for him, a different intention for him. And he moves upon the heart of Peter. He gifts Peter with this gift of faith to know in that instance, today's a different day. Normally I pass this guy by. Normally I throw him a dollar or two. But today is a different day. And Peter looks the man in the eye, speaks to the man, and he says to him in that instance, get up, be healed. 
and the man is healed. And as I said earlier, they went into the temple, they began to celebrate, and a commotion uh, was uh, raised here. And Peter sees this crowd that comes. What's going on? Why all the noise? Why is this guy? That's the guy. What happened to him? Peter sees this as an opportunity to preach to the people about Jesus. And we looked at that last week. And so Jesus, or Peter gave a sermon, his second sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts. He delivers this sermon to those that had come to find out what is going on. Now, we looked at that last week. You can go back. It's the second half of chapter 3. But one of the things that we saw in that particular, or we did not see yet in that sermon, was how the people responded. So did the people like it? Did a lot of people come forward like they did on the day of Pentecost? Did they not like it? And we don't want to hear any more of this. You know, what, what happened? We're going to find that out today, whether they accepted or rejected. I'll give you a little clue. The answer is a little bit of both. Some received it, some rejected it. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That's Peter and John. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the religious leaders weren't too keen on what Peter and John were sharing. If you look again at verse 3 there, it says that they were, uh, well, earlier than that, two, I think it is. It says that they were greatly annoyed and that they arrested them and put them into custody. For what? Because they healed this man. People wanted to know what it was about, and they began to explain it. The religious leaders arrested them and put them into custody. So not everyone was excited about this particular day and the events that went down on this particular day. However, look at verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed. So some, many, did receive. Religious leaders didn't like it, just like they didn't like when Jesus preached. But the many, the masses, heard the word and believed. And it goes on to say, and the number of men came to about 5,000. About 5,000. About 5,000 people in Jerusalem now that are naming the name of Christ. In the previous chapter, back in chapter 2, where we saw on the day of Pentecost, we saw on that particular day that the number was about 3,000. There is a, an interesting word usage here. It says, and the number of men came to about, which may indicate there was about 5,000 men, maybe there was about 5,000 women, maybe the number's up to 10,000. But just to be conservative, we'll say now that there was about 5,000 people in Jerusalem that named the name of Christ. Two months earlier, there was 120 that named the name of Christ. Jesus' church is growing. People are responding. They're hearing, as Jesus promised, they were going to be witnesses even to the ends of the earth, but it was going to begin in Jerusalem. Now, despite the growing church, there's also a growing opposition. And I briefly introduced that with the first couple of verses here. Despite the opposition, though, the church is growing. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian people to give his life for Christ, that's why we use the term martyr, he said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so we see here, the more that the church was oppressed, and I would say even in our day, the more that the church is, is oppressed, the more the church grows. Amen? 
That's exciting, isn't it? We like that. That's one of those Bible promises that we, we skip in our Bible promise boxes, and we move on to the other ones about peace and, and all of that. But oppression comes upon the church here, and it will continue throughout the book of Acts. We'll look at that a little bit um, further on here. But first, I want to look at these that responded and those that believed here, new believers. Notice it says in verse 4, and then the, but many of those who heard the word believed. So these new believers, they become believers as a, as a result of the word of God going forth. It's not the miracle that caused them to believe. That's very important that we understand, because sometimes we, we think that, God, I'll know you really care about me if you do this particular miracle in my life, whatever it might be. Then I'll know, and then I'll believe. The miracle had the effect of interesting, interest, causing the people to be interested, causing them to be curious, drawing them to what is going on here. But it was the word that Peter preached that caused these people to believe. Again, remember that verse we looked at last week, Romans 10, 17, that says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. What Peter's listeners, what that crowd there in the temple area, what they needed to hear was the gospel. That's what that crowd needed. Not more miracles, not interesting stories, but the gospel. And so that's what Peter gave to them. And it's the gospel as many of you know, that changes our lives. It changes our hearts. It's the gospel that transforms us. That's the first point we take notice of with those that believe. The second thing that I want to bring up here is related uh, to something I shared last, the last couple of weeks, and that refers to the timing of the miracle and Peter's subsequent preaching. And so I pointed out the last couple of weeks now, as we've been looking at this lame man being healed, that this lame man had been laid there daily at the temple, and it said that he is now about 40 years of age. Laid there daily at the temple every day. We also learned that Peter and John went to the temple daily, as was their custom, which means they passed this guy many, many times. We know that Jesus, just three months earlier, went into the temple with regularity. And he had done so every time that he was down in the area of Jerusalem over that three-year period of ministry and many, many years even before that. Which means Jesus almost certainly passed this guy on many occasions. And yet he wasn't healed on those particular occasions. And so the second thing that we see here is this. It's important for us to understand that we don't always know the timing of God. And that doesn't mean that God isn't good still. Of course, we all look at the miracle and we say, wow, look how good God is. Well, God is still good, even in those instances when the man wasn't healed. So we don't always know the, the timing of God and why God didn't respond to the man's prayers or his parents' prayers, the many other times that they had prayed those particular prayers. Again, I said earlier, it seems like the guy had even stopped praying for a miracle, almost had given up, had lost hope that he would ever be healed. And sometimes God works sooner in our lives, and sometimes he works later in our lives. And quite honestly, as hard as it is to hear, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we are asking him to answer our prayers. And even in those things, it is our responsibility, it is our duty to entrust ourselves to God's goodness and to God's plan even in those things, because we know that he is wise 
We certainly know that he is able. We know that he is loving. And we know that he is good. And we entrust ourselves to him. Amen? Well, we don't always know his timing, but we do know it's perfect when his timing is implemented because we notice this. Notice as a result of this man's healing, on this particular day, notice that at least 2,000 people come to know the Lord as a result of his healing. That because his healing had been delayed to this particular day, when Peter and John would encounter him, and those particular people would be there in the temple, and Peter would share in response to the commotion that, was, that had arisen, arisen 2,000, it says, at least, responded. And so God's timing was perfect in this. God had used this man's life and the difficulty of this man's life to bring 2,000 people to the faith. I have to imagine if we get to heaven, when we get to heaven, if we can locate this particular fellow somehow, and we could ask him, let me ask you, if God would have saved you or healed you three weeks earlier, three years earlier, but nobody got saved as a result of your healing and the preaching that came as a result, would that have been okay with you? I have to imagine if we would have asked that particular guy this, he said, you know what, I would have delayed it until the day so many came to the Lord. It was worth it. He came to this place where he realized God's timing is perfect timing. And look what God accomplished through the difficulties that I had to face. I'm reminded of the missionary Jim Elliott. He said this, he gave his life, many of you know, for preaching the gospel. I believe it was in the 50s, 54, I think it was, down in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott said this, you know it, it's a pretty popular quote. He says, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We can look at this man, we can say, you lost 40 years of your life where you couldn't walk, you couldn't work, you couldn't get about, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. He says, you know what, though? There are thousands of souls that are here in heaven because God delayed his timing, and I'm okay with that. I'm reminded again, I, I mentioned him last week, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is the patriarch Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph that we find in the book of Genesis. And Joseph, you recall, he had one disappointment after another in his life. He was attacked and beaten by his brothers. He was left in the wilderness, in the desert, for dead. They threw him in a pit, actually, a well of some sorts. Then, when his brothers realized, look, we can make money off of this guy. Let's let him die. We can sell him into slavery and make some money. And that's what they do. What a crummy thing to have done to you, certainly, and by your own family members. Well, sometime after that, he sought to be the best possible slave that he could be, which is certainly noble, and then he was wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. Again, what a crummy life this guy is living. And then while in prison, he sought to be the best possible prisoner that he could be. And how did that end up? Well, he was just forgotten there in prison, wasting away his particular days. Again, you look at this man Joseph's life, one disappointment after another after another. And yet, this is what Joseph says at the end of his life. When all was said and done, his response to his brothers, who he finally does come back into contact with, and all the difficulty and all that. We could say his brothers caused all that difficulty. But this is what he said to them. He said, God sent me. God sent me here before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then he says, so it was not you 
who sent me here but God. And then a little bit later, he says this. He says, look, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Talk about an otherworldly perspective that that man had. That's the type of perspective I hope each one of us has. That's what I hope I have. Or allow to develop within me. Well, I think that man would have had that. All right, God delayed my healing for 40 years. But look what he did as a result of it. It's all worth it. Now, earlier, I said some responded positively to Peter, some responded negatively. Let's transition to those that were less than pleased. Starting in verse 1, I'll read it again. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon Peter and John, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, because it was already uh, evening. First record of hostility and persecution toward the church, which we'll see a lot in the book of Acts, is here now in Acts chapter 4. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied was going to come down upon the church. Maybe you remember Mark 13, he says to his, his disciples, be on your guard because they're going to deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said these things were going to come, and Peter and John are the first ones to really begin to experience some of those opening uh, persecutions that Jesus said they were to expect. We read in verses 1 through 6 as little as 11 different individuals or groups of little small groups of people that come against Peter and John in this instance. And so you'll notice in the first three individuals are in the opening verse or so. It says the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now in the New Testament, the priest, that term usually refers to the high priest and sort of his little entourage, oftentimes his family members, future high priests, that sort of thing. And so those people come up, and they're rich, they're powerful people uh, in that day. They come up about, against Peter and John in this moment. In your mind, try to picture the elite of society, the high priest, and two common fishermen, Peter and John. The captain of the temple, it says, was there. Now, the captain of the temple was the head of the temple police force. These were the guys whose job it was, the police force, their job it was to make sure that the rules of the temple were being followed. And so if you didn't have the proper head covering on, you were dealt with. You went into the wrong area, you were dealt with. You were too loud. Today, if you go up in the Temple Mount area, they have police like that. I think they're called the Wafta or something like that. And they're there to maintain the decor of that particular area because it's a, a holy place for Muslims now. And so you go up there and you, you put your arm around your wife for a little picture. They'll come over and they'll let you know, yeah, we don't do that up here. And you come over and your head covering slipped off a little ladies. They're going to come over. They're going to talk to you. Well, that's what the captain of the guard, he was in charge of those that did that in that particular day, the head of the police force. So you have the high priest and you got the chief of police that are coming after you here. The third group we have are the Sadducees that come against Peter and John. We see that also in the opening verse. 
In that day, in that particular day, the high priest was a Sadducee. The Sadducees were not terribly numerous. There wasn't like thousands of them, but they were quite powerful and quite influential. They were the most powerful and most influential in first century Jerusalem. It's interesting to note, just as an aside, in the Gospels, Jesus' primary opponent was the Pharisees. In the book of Acts, what we're going to see is the primary opponent of the church was the Sadducees. Just file that away as a point of interest, and, and I think there's a reason for it. So you have the high priest there, you have the police captain there, and then you have this really highly powerful, influential group of people that were called the Sadducees. Go down to verse 5 for a second. We see three other individuals and groups that are there. It says, now on the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So you got the high priest there, you got the chief of police that is there, you have the Sadducees that are there, and here now we see the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. The rulers would have been sort of the distinguished older gentlemen of the society there. They are the rulers. The uh, elders are probably some of the former officials that now are sort of emeritus. They're kind of retired, but they still have influence there. And then you have the scribes. They're the experts on the Old Testament law. Some of your versions will use the word lawyers, not like we use the word lawyers, but they were experts in the Old Testament law. This is what it means. We know it. Don't have opinions for yourself. We'll tell you what it means. We also learn there that Annas, the high priest, that's his name, he is there. Caiaphas, now here's a confusing thing, Caiaphas was the high priest. In the Jewish system, they only had one high priest at a time, you were named high priest, and you were so for life. At this time, they're under the control of the Romans, and the Romans sort of weighed in. And the Romans decided, we don't like this Annas guy, and they appointed Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, but everyone in society still thought of Annas as the high priest, even though technically Caiaphas is the high priest. And make sense? You with me? So Annas is there. Caiaphas is there. We learn this guy named John and a fellow named Alexander from the high priestly family are there. So at minimum, there's 11 people that have surrounded. We probably have a group of 30, 40 people that have surrounded Peter and John. This is the who's who of the ruling class of Jewish society there in Jerusalem, and they come against Peter and John, they, they're going to put them on trial. Remember, they arrested them the night before, kept them in custody, and then brought them out the next day. Luke points out in verse 1 that they came upon them. Now, we use that phrase, I was out for a nice walk, and I came upon this lovely field of flowers. It was so fortuitous, it was lovely. I'm so happy it happened. We, we use it like we're stumbling across something. The word that is used here, the phrase that is used here, is not sort of accidentally found something. So what's not being communicated is these guys were milling about the temple area. They see these folks talking. Oh, let's see what's going on over here. That's not what is going on. The word that is used here for came upon is the idea of coming upon suddenly and with force. So if you watch sort of the TV shows, or maybe you had this experience in your life, hopefully not, where the SWAT team comes breaking the door down in the middle of the night, that's what's going on here. They came upon them suddenly. 
They got, they're all in their walkie-talkies so they could coordinate the time now. Go, go, go. And they come running in and they surround Peter and John. Again, why? Because they healed a man and now they're explaining to people how that went down. Does this seem like a little bit of overkill for this particular circumstance here? They come upon them suddenly, they arrest them, and they put them in custody. Now this is a very, very serious situation for Peter and John. These are the same people that killed Jesus two months earlier. Peter was there, John was there, you recall. This is very serious. No doubt, it's at least running through Peter and John's mind, they're going to kill us tomorrow. They're going to whip us and beat us and crucify us tomorrow. Luke tells us in verse 2 that these powers that be there were greatly annoyed. And he goes on to give us the two reasons why they're greatly annoyed. One, it says that they were teaching the people. And two, they were proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. We see both of those in verse 2. Now the Sadducees, we might best describe them. I introduced them earlier. We might best describe them as rationalist. Religious, but rationalists. They don't, they don't believe in this idea of miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They sort of believed in the here and now. They kind of preached a message of be a good person, live a good life, you know, and all these kinds of things. It, it was the here and the now. Peter, every time he preaches, he preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very thing that the most powerful and influential leaders didn't believe in. And yet Peter keeps talking about it. And if Jesus had indeed rose from the dead, then everything that the Sadducees believed and stood upon would be found to be untrue. And so they cannot let this go on. And so one of the reasons why they're greatly annoyed is because they keep talking about this resurrection of the dead. It must be stopped. The other reason why they're annoyed is because Peter and John it just simply says, because they were teaching the people. Uh, you could read it, they were teaching the people about the resurrection of the dead, but that's not what it says. It says they were teaching the people, and they were proclaiming in Jesus the, the resurrection from the dead. And so they were bothered that they would have the nerve to stand up and to teach other people religious things. They were the teachers. And who were these uneducated fishermen that would have the nerve to stand up and think that they could speak authoritatively on any subject, particularly a religious topic. Teaching by anybody else than themselves was a threat to their authority, and so they must put it, uh, to, they must stop it. And so as we see again in verse 3, they arrest them, they put them into custody. It tells us the reason they put them into custody is because it was evening. Now, this ruling body here, the name of this ruling body is one you might be familiar with. It's the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, they had a rule. It was a group of 71, I, I believe it actually was. Um, they had a rule. They had a list of rules that they had to follow, much like one might think our Congress does. Uh, and one of those rules is you could not have a trial at nighttime. And so the reason why they arrest them and put them into custody is because we'll have a trial first thing in the morning. Now, of course, this is the same Sanhedrin that put Jesus through a series of trials in the nighttime. If they wanted to ignore their rules, they would ignore their rules when they wanted to. But in this particular instance here, they follow their rules. 
They put them in custody, they put them in jail under some kind of house arrest of some sorts until they can bring them. And it says in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, and all the others, they gathered together in Jerusalem with that group that I mentioned, verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And so when morning comes, they wake Peter and John up early in the morning, um, I suspect, if they were sleeping at all, and they bring them. Notice it says they place them in the midst of this tribunal, of the most significant people of Jerusalem society in that day. They take these two backwoods country, uh, can you be backwoods and country? I'm not sure. But they take these two guys, these common folk from up north, and they put them right in the midst of, of them. And I think one of the things that the Sanhedrin is trying to do here, they can't convince with their argument, and so they try to force with their authority and power. And they're trying to intimidate Peter and John through this whole particular process. Everything about what we have seen so far appears to me, at least, to be designed to intimidate Peter and John. Again, let's go through some of it. They come upon them suddenly like a shock and all police raid. Then they put him in custody. The King James words it this way, they laid, they laid hands upon them, which gives this idea that they forcibly remove them and drag them out of that particular place. They lock them up in prison overnight so they can think about it all night. And now they put them in front of this sort of this august group of people and they place these two men right there in the midst of it. Again, the group who had voted that Jesus would be crucified just about two months or so earlier. Again, everything I'm seeing here is designed to communicate that they wanted Peter and John to know, we have the authority to put you to death. And we just very well may do it. And so with that, the trial begins. They say in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, by what power or by what name did you do this? The this refers back to the healing of the lame man from the day prior. And Peter will say as much. He'll say in verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? You know, Peter acknowledges that's what this is about, that we healed this particular fellow. The Sanhedrin, they ask, by what name or by what power did you do this? They're asking, by what authority did you do this? Where did it come from? Who empowered you to do this particular thing? Now, interesting, believe it or not, there's nothing wrong with the Sanhedrin's question or the concept of this particular trial. Because as bad as they were, the Sanhedrin were the ruling body of the Jewish people. It was their job to preserve and protect the teachings of the Old Testament. And so here are these guys that are coming in, they're on the Temple Mount, they're stirring up a commotion, and they're preaching a particular message. The key responsibility of these Jewish leaders was to make sure that they were preserving the Jewish faith. It says this in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13. Moses wrote this, the law of Moses, he said, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. Where is this coming from? What's this authority? Who are you pointing people to? Are you here to lead people away from Jehovah? That was the job of this Sanhedrin. And so the trial in and of itself is what they should have been doing. How they go about it, they're abusing their power, if you ask me. 
Peter and John to this Sanhedrin very well might be the worthless fellows that Moses was speaking of. He very well might be leading people astray after another god. And so they're going to inquire. They're going to check it out. Now, we know they weren't, but they didn't know that. And so, again, the question, by what authority or in whose name did you do this thing? And so if Peter and John say anyone other than Jehovah, then according to Moses, the penalty for leading people astray from Jehovah was that they should be executed. So this is a serious situation that is here. They say, you know, what power are you doing this? We continue verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He responds, it says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means that man, this man, has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this this man is standing before you well. So Peter says, Where did our power, where did our authority come from? It came from Jesus Christ. And let me be real clear. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you put to death. That's where our authority came from. That's where our power came from. Peter says, let it be known to all of you. I think he there is addressing this this, uh, Congress or or so, the, the Sanhedrin. He's addressing them. Let this be known to all of you. Then I imagine Peter raised his voice and he looked around at the crowd that had gathered. And he says, and to all the rest of you people of Israel, to all the people of Israel, you notice he says there that this man was healed by Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Now, this is the second time that we read in the book of Acts that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the second time we see that Peter was empowered to testify of Jesus Christ. The first time we read it was back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to preach. Here again, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he testifies of Jesus Christ. So the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's important for us to understand, and different people use different terminology for it, but it's important for us to understand that this isn't a one and done kind of thing. This is not something that happens to you at one particular point in time and then you go on from there. It's this process that continues to work. It's this process of being immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit and being influenced by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens once more in Peter's life. And he begins to proclaim, he begins to speak. It's something that should be happening again and again in your life. Going before the Lord. Lord, you know, I just put myself aside. I want more of you. Empower me. You do that first thing in the morning. You do that when you get to work. You do that as you're sitting down and someone's annoying you. You just do it again and again and again. You ask the Holy Spirit to empower you and to enable you. And so Peter here, filled with the Holy Spirit, he addresses these leaders, and he does so, notice, with great boldness. These are the most elite individuals of society, and Peter's a common fisherman. These are those with the power to put people to death. And they saw their best friend killed just two months earlier. And so Peter and John, with boldness, Peter in particular, speaks And one thing that I begin to notice as we look at this uh, interaction between Peter and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin becomes the one that's on trial. Peter begins to speak, and then he turns and he asks them the questions. He puts them on trial here. 
the man who just two months earlier denied the Lord in the presence of little girls is now boldly standing before the powers that be and challenging them. Filled with boldness, filled with courage, the courage to testify faithfully to Jesus Christ. Courage is certainly an admirable trait. It's one that I imagine a lot of us wish we had a little bit more of. But we remind ourselves there's really two different types of courage. There's a courage that we might call reckless courage. This is just doing dumb things, jumping off of buildings or whatever. A lot of teenage boys do this. I used to do that. And you don't really give thought to, this could be problematic. That's a reckless courage. That's not what's going on here with Peter. The second kind of courage is a courage that knows the danger but refuses to be dissuaded. I know where this might lead, but I'm going to go forward anyway. I need to go forward anyway. And that's the sort of courage that Peter and John are demonstrating here in front of the Sanhedrin. Again, they're taking their life into their own hand with these particular words and with this message that they're going to share. But Peter sees this as a priceless opportunity. This is our opportunity to preach the gospel to the religious establishment. I have to go forward with this. And so Peter, he seizes the opportunity, and as we saw, eagerly and fearlessly, he begins to preach. Again, look at 10. He says, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, this man is healed. The one you crucified, God raised from the dead. Peter preached Jesus, the Jesus they crucified. But notice again, the Jesus that God raised back from the dead. That was whom by whom this man has been healed. Now, their question, who gave you the authority to do this? Peter answered the question. He could have stopped right there. But Peter continues here. He did what he needed to do. He answered the particular question, but he continues to go on. And the reason why he does is, is because Peter's not just interested in defending himself. He's interested in preaching the gospel. He needed to tell more of the story. Maybe he's thinking to himself, I may never have a chance like this again. They're going to kill me in a few minutes or hours. I better let it all out now. I might as well. Or maybe things don't let me go back to Jerusalem. When's the next time I'm going to be here in Jerusalem before all these people? And so he decides, I'm going to go for it. And perhaps preemptively, he anticipates some of their objections. Again, remember their threats. He says, and by the way, verse 11, this Jesus this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone or the cornerstone. Now remember, according to the Deuteronomy passage that I referenced earlier, the Sanhedrin, they had the power to put to, to death anyone that they determined were leading people away from other gods. And so when they asked Peter the question, in whose name are you doing this? If the answer wasn't Jehovah, or perhaps alternatively Yahweh, depending on what they preferred in that day. If the answer wasn't Jehovah or Yahweh, then they could put Peter and John to death. And what was Peter's answer? It was Jesus. That's not Jehovah, as, as far as the, the same word is concerned. And so, he says in Jesus' name, that's how this particular man was healed, by his authority, by his power, and then Peter, almost anticipating them going to say, aha, we knew it wasn't Jehovah. Peter says, well, wait a minute. This is Jehovah's plan all along. 
And he points them to a psalm in the Old Testament. And he says to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He directs their attention to the same psalm that Jesus directed the attention of the, the Sanhedrin when he had to deal with them. And Jesus, you recall, Jesus said this, uh, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone? This is from the Lord. It is marvelous in his eyes. Peter goes to the same place that Jesus had gone to. And that's Psalm 118, verse 22. We'll put that up there. You'll notice it's almost word for word exactly the same. And so what Peter is doing is preempting any charge that they might bring that he is leading people away from Jehovah by demonstrating that Jesus is right in the midst of Jehovah's plan. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. And he has now become our chief cornerstone. He has fulfilled the scriptures. He has fulfilled their scriptures. This Jesus. Now the cornerstone was the most important stone of, of all in a particular building. It was off the cornerstone that all of the other walls were erected so that they would be straight in the right angles, all these sorts of stuff. It all started with this, the cornerstone. The most important was, one, Jesus, Peter says Jesus is that cornerstone. And they despised him. They rejected him. There's a story that is told. It may or may not be true. It probably isn't. But there's a story that is told that when the initial temple was constructed in Jerusalem, we do know biblically that all of the stones were prepared off-site, numbered, if you will. I don't know if they actually numbered them. But they were all prepared off-site and carted to the temple, mount, to the temple area where they were eventually erected. And as these stones began to make their way there, there was a particular stone that the architect, that the engineers on site just couldn't figure out what's this stone for. We have no idea. And eventually, after trying to figure this whole thing out, they gave up. And they just pushed the stone down the mountain that the temple was built on. And it rolled down and it ended up down in the Kidron Valley just at the foot uh, of this particular mount where the temple is. Time goes on. They realize, you know what? We still don't have that cornerstone. They went back. They checked. They asked. We sent it already down. It went down two months ago. And they realized it's the one that we've rejected. The stone that the builders had rejected was indeed the chief cornerstone. Now, that may or may not be true, that particular story, but it does certainly drive home the particular point. And we have that verse that is found there in the Old Testament. Those men, if that story is true, with that particular stone, initially discarded the stone. They rejected the stone until they came to realize it was the indispensable stone. It was the chief cornerstone. That, Peter says, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was God's anointed and they had rejected him, and they had crucified him, but God raised him from the dead, and he is the indispensable stone to this day. Jesus was rejected by men, the very leaders in front of Peter, but he was exalted by God. And Peter says it's in the power of him that this man is healed. He goes on from there in verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved, by which we must be saved. Now you remember in the beginning they said, in whose name are you doing this? I picture Peter here thinking, you want to talk about names? We'll talk about names. And he says, there is no other name under heaven 
given among men, whereby we must be saved. But Jesus Christ. Please notice this. I hope we all understand this before leaving here. Peter didn't merely proclaim Jesus as a way to heaven, but he preached him as the only way to heaven, as the Bible does, and as Jesus himself even declared. Well, maybe they didn't understand Jesus. Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father unless he goes through me. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, in this day and age in which we live, that message doesn't fly, does it? Notice our ten think about our tendencies. What do you do if you're watching a news program and you don't quite like the bent of that news program? What do you do? You flip over to find the one you do like. Ah, oh, I like this one. They know what they're talking about because it agrees with you. We live in a society where we think we can go our own direction, do our own thing, and it'll all kind of make sense in the end. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so all ways, all paths don't lead to God. There is one way to God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Now, people say that sounds so narrow. It is very narrow. That's so exclusive. Yep, it's completely exclusive. Some would say that's intolerant of my ideas and my views. Yeah, it is, actually. Your ideas and your views contradict the scripture. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm fully aware not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody understands that. But what one cannot do is say the Bible teaches something different. And so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are many ways to God. But the Bible doesn't teach that. And when I come to the end of my days and you come to the end of your days, not you in particular, a person comes to the end of their particular days believing that all paths are going to lead to the Lord and I come to the end of my days believing there's only one way to come to the Lord, the truth will be found out in that moment in time. But what we cannot say is, well, the Bible says something different. The Bible is very clear. There is one way and one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. And I hope each of us understand that in here this morning. Personally for yourself, you've received the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. But at the very least, you have an understanding that that's what the Bible teaches. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ, offensive to many, but nevertheless what the Bible teaches. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you agree with that? Some of us? So if a person is to be saved, and when I say saved, by the way, I'm talking about dealing with your sin problem. The Bible teaches that every one of us are sinners. Well, I'm not so bad. I understand. You're not so bad. I'm much worse than you. I live with myself. I know what goes on in my heart. But the fact is that if you have one sin, you're a sinner. And that one sin, let alone the thousands that you likely have, separate you from a holy God. Judgment is the result of that separation. And so when we talked about being saved, we talk about being saved from the judgment that your sin deserves. The Bible says there is only one way that we can be saved, and that's God's appointed way. Jesus Christ. That's the message of our Bibles, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so Peter now, he gets to the end of his sermon. Verse 12 is the last verse of this little message here before the Sanhedrin. He gets to the end of it, and he turns it back upon them. Essentially, they had said, Who, what power did you heal this man? And he says this essentially in the end here. It's not only the lame man who was healed by the name of Jesus. That name is the only name by which anyone can be healed. And what's the greatest healing that everyone needs? The healing of their soul. Dealing with their sin problem. Amen? Amen. Only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we declare that truth. And Father, as uh, believers, many, many of us in this room and listening online, watching online, as believers, we declare that truth for ourselves. The only way that I could be saved is by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, Father, I ask that you would work within our hearts today, granting us sort of an increased boldness, a greater reliance on your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would uh, sort of solidify our thinking in a greater way of the need for that exclusive truth to be communicated to the entire world. Lord, may we be men and women more like a Peter and John that know the possible consequences but decide to move forward anyway because what else am I going to do? It's true. I have to proclaim it. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to communicate it with a heart of love Lord, with a heart that does desperately desires to see that people come to an understanding of it and come into a saving relationship with Christ as well. Lord, that we wouldn't be interpreted as a people that are hard-hearted and we just want to go around calling everybody sinners, but that we do so so that people might come to know Christ for themselves, experiencing the joy of being cleansed of their sin, the guilt, the separation that keeps them from the Holy One. Lord, use us in the lives of others. And Father, for any that are here today that don't yet know Christ, would you impress the reality of these things on their heart this morning and bring them to the place of salvation? Lord, we pray because we can come into your presence through Christ. And so we pray our prayer today in his name. Amen.